What's up, my friends, and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. And wow, have I not said that in a while. So excited to be back. So excited to be doing this BGDL 2.0 relaunch thing. And so glad to have you here along for the ride. And for this relaunch, I had to call up my good friend, Jamie Stegmeyer. Seems like no matter what I'm doing as far as a start or a stop or a milestone, he's the guy I call up first guest, the first round draft pick, as far as having somebody join me as a guest on the show. Jamie being the creator of Stonemaier Games, one of the best publishers in our hobby today, at least in my opinion. And he's one of the best resources online for both crowdfunding knowledge and just publishing knowledge in general. He's been so amazing over the years just to share everything he was learning from behind the scenes. And that's exactly the kind of stuff we get into in this episode. We talk about how to monetize creativity and the many roadblocks people run into. Jamie unpacks what he would do if he had to start over and build a publishing company from scratch. He also opens up about his biggest financial mistake. We talk about why people should design games and a whole lot more. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And the record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years, and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. But now, please help me welcome Jamie Stegmeyer. So Jamie, we're talking about how to monetize creativity. One thing I've, I've noticed both personally and just talking to other creative people, it is so incredibly challenging. It is just so hard to make money, to make a living off of art in any form, it seems like. First of all, have you noticed that too? Or have you found like the golden ticket and you're like, hey, this is easy for me. But you know, have you noticed that too? And then why do you why do you think it is so hard for so many people to monetize creativity? I think part of it is sometimes our passions don't align with what is actually lucrative. Like I, uh, for a long time, I wanted to publish a book. I wanted to write a book and publish a book. And I wrote the book. Um, maybe I could have gotten an agent for it. I didn't go that far with it. But to actually turn that passion for writing a novel into actually making money from a novel is, they're almost two completely separate skill sets. Have you experienced that? Oh, 100%. You know, one thing I've noticed is people who are really good at art are typically really terrible at business. And then yeah. oftentimes vice versa, right? The the odds that you were born with both sides of your brain really good at those things is very, very rare. Uh, you might be able to be really mediocre at both. I've I've met people that are like fine, you know, at both sides. But yeah, I think there's something and, and history is is just full of incredibly artistic people who got screwed over by really smart business people. Right. And so I think that's another thing is that it makes it challenging as an artist or as a creator or an inventor is it's kind of easier to take advantage of you because you don't want to deal with the the taxes and the profit and loss sheets and like all of that stuff. And then unfortunately, if you run into the wrong kind of person, you know, I think the Elvis Presley movie that came out recently was talking about him, like his manager, like stole so much money and had him doing all these projects, all this stuff. And, and he just wanted to make music. He just wanted to be out there on stage and do all that. And so I think that's another uh, challenge because in today's world, like you have access to everybody. You know, back in the day, there were so many gatekeepers you had to go through. 
But now you can go online and you can build an audience and you can do it all yourself. But even still, you know, we don't have this overabundance of, of people making money creatively, especially considering how many people are, are doing art. So what else do you think it is? Well, I, and to touch upon what you're saying there a little bit is, yeah, we have access to everybody. We also have access to so much information. If if you wanted to be an expert at something, you at something specifically that you aren't already an expert at, you could probably gain expertise in that subject. But we're limited by our, our own time, our own resources, our own priorities, our other projects. An example of this for, for Stonemaier Games, the company that I that I helped to run, is uh, we have a game. Actually, you're wearing a, a shirt right now uh, that for one of our, our big games, Scythe. And for a while, people were asking us to make a role-playing game for Scythe. And it is possible that we could have made some money making a role-playing game for Scythe. But I realized after people started showing role-playing games to me for in the Scythe world that I knew I'm not a role-playing gamer. I, I play tabletop games. I don't play role-playing games. So I knew nothing about whether what makes a good role-playing game, nor did I realize, this is the bigger thing that I realized, I don't know anything about selling role-playing games. It's a completely different distribution model than tabletop games. I, I, I you know, the market is, I would have to do so much market research to understand how that system works. I could do it, but I'm already successful at selling board games. So why pivot over there? If I already know this, so it's kind of this limitation of like the information is there, but do I actually want to access it? Do I want to spend all that time to figure out how to do it versus something that I'm already doing decently? Yeah, that's a good point. And especially when it comes to time, it's a zero sum game. Like you only have so much. And if you're going to put in a bunch of time and effort and energy and money and all this stuff into something like that, then that means you're not putting that same effort and all that into the next game that you're working on. And which one are you going to make more money at? And that's the thing, like kind of what you're going back what you're saying earlier is like, you might be really excited and passionate about something that's not particularly lucrative. That's not making a lot of money. I remember one time years ago, I was, uh, when I was working with homeless folks in Atlanta and there was this guy who was an intern at one of the organizations and he was going through law school and as part of his law school program, he had to work for like a nonprofit or something like that for a certain amount of time. And so he was working with this homeless ministry uh, downtown and he and I got hooked up at one point and, and we were going under the bridges and doing different things. I'm talking to him about all the different stuff. And um, I said, oh, man, you're going to be a lawyer. That's, that's cool. Uh, you make make good money doing that, right? And he goes, yeah, yeah. You know. And the type of law he was going into was like super lucrative. And I was like, man, you should you should think about homeless ministry, though. Like, make a lot of money doing homeless ministry. I get, you know, a lot of big checks. He goes, really? No. No, man, I'm just messing with you. Like, there's no, there's no money in this. You know, it's just something that if your heart's not in it, then... It's not going to work. And I feel like that's a lot of art. Like it's hard to, it's especially because of scale. Let's talk about that. One thing I think you've, you've kind of cracked the code on is you've been able to sell millions of games. That is a very challenging thing to take art and then scale it up. So talk to me about your experience in, because you didn't just wake up and do this. Like you started off with a pretty humble Kickstarter campaign with Viticulture way back in the day, but now you've managed to sell ridiculous number of games, especially for our side of the industry. How did you do that? Tell me some insights as far as scale. Well, I think you you used a, a word that I think of often when I think about a, a first project for whether it's my first project or someone else's, and that word is humble. Um, start, it, it really helped that I happened to start small. If that campaign had really blown up, I think it raised around $60,000, which was a lot of money. It felt like a ton of money at the time. Um, but if that had raised $600,000 and we were making... 15,000 games instead of 1,500 games. I think we made 2,500 in that first print run. Uh, even 2,500 of a thing is a lot, is a lot of copies of a thing to make. But 
scaling up would have been difficult to do it off the bat. I'm, I'm glad that I was able to get my foot in the door, see what works, see, see what didn't work, see what did scale well um, before having some bigger projects come along. And so I think that can be that can be intimidating. I think for any any creator, if you're making one copy of something, you know, it that first copy is depending on how you look at the math can be very expensive, but it's also just one copy of it compared to an unknown quantity if your if your project really takes off it's daunting i think yeah and that's a good point in that success can ruin you right overwhelming success especially when you haven't built up the foundation of understanding because i know i made so many mistakes with my first project and then the next project i made a few less mistakes the next project a few less you know and so in my first project i think i had 300 backers you know nothing crazy and again i printed just a handful of copies like like you're talking about um, but then I noticed that in the manufacturing that they had, there was a misprint. It was my fault. I had sent them the wrong art file and the layers were messed up. And so some of the information on the card that had to be there was underneath other information. So you couldn't see it. And so I had to go back to the manufacturer, print the correct cards, and then mail those out to everybody. Now, luckily I was only mailing out 300 of those and not 3000 or, you know, 5,000 like that would have changed the math of everything. And so, like you said, like, it's, it's okay to start humble. I think a lot of people, they, they see million dollar campaigns. They're like, Oh, that could be me. It's like, it could be, are you sure? Like, be careful what you wish for. Like, it might not be what you want. Like, wait five years, then run a million dollar campaign or or something like that. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point. Now, speaking of crowdfunding, a while back, you pivoted away. You know, you ran several campaigns that were very successful. The side campaign made millions of dollars. You did a lot of really cool stuff on crowdfunding. You have a blog devoted to crowdfunding. Like, you were a crowdfunding OG. Like, you were one of the main people that the internet would go to for information and advice and best practices. But then you decided that you wanted to do something different. So tell me about the process, the mindset, like why you did that and, and kind of the the insight behind it. Yeah, I mean, there were, uh, there were a lot of reasons for the switch over. Um Part of it was kind of personal slash emotional slash psychological and that we uh it was after the scythe campaign was delivering and we were delivering early and we were delivering really the thing that everyone had hoped that we would deliver um, the game has done very well and people were happy to get it and yet there was uh we were talking about passion earlier there was the passion from the buyer side and and how that kind of manifested in some ways that made me a little bit worried it also made me worried in terms of scale when one of the fulfillment centers didn't really follow through on their promises, they they weren't packaging the games well. I'm, I'm rather lucky, really, that a number of those games arrived in good condition. And that was a one fulfillment center covering Europe, like the entire region of Europe. And it made me you know, a little scared for a little while to use fulfillment centers versus going to directly to retailers, distributors. I've now pivoted back to, to also selling directly. But just some things like that, especially given the scale of side that made me nervous and made me want to to try to improve our relationships with retailers and distributors, which is another thing actually about this discussion about monetization. Like, are you just selling to individual people or are you trying to get into stores around the country or around the world? Um, yeah. So anyway, we, we, we switched over to that, uh, that, that method with our next game charter zone of, of, uh, primarily selling to retailers and distributors and seeing how that went and, uh, it, it it went fine, uh, but it was it was definitely it felt a lot different than getting all that money up front. We were kind of making something in the hopes that it would sell, in the hopes that people would want it, in the hopes that distributors would want it. And fortunately, they did. But there was a lot of risk there to try that. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess in a lot of ways, there's always risk no matter what you do, right? It's just a matter of where is the risk 
in the times you know timeline. But uh, go, go back to what you just said as far as like distributors versus retailers versus uh, direct to consumer things like that. That's a whole different marketing plan. Like which way you're going to do it? If you're going to run a campaign, a crowdfunding campaign, that has a very specific marketing plan that you have to come up with versus if you're just going to try to get into stores and distributors and things like that. So tell me just some of your, the things you're seeing nowadays, right? With the market being a little bit bloated, like there's so many companies, so many games, there's so much going on. It's hard to cut through all the noise. So what are you seeing marketing wise that someone listening to this show could kind of take away, especially if they're on the newer side, right? They're just starting out. They're just trying to figure out what are some marketing tips you would have for well, Gabe, I don't know if my answer will be all that encouraging to someone watching this, because unfortunately, I think the answer often that I'm seeing for retailers and distributors is that they are defaulting a lot more to the things they know they can sell within a few months. And those things are often either a perennial bestseller, an evergreen game that they're getting requests for, at least a few requests for every month, or they are a hot new game. And those are two things that you, have, you don't have that much control over. Like if we're trying to make a product, whether it's a game or something else, you're trying to make the best version of that product, but you can't really control if it's going to be a hot new game. You can't control if it's going to be a best-selling game, especially from the beginning. So in terms of marketing, I think you can do your best to, in terms of the marketing of the product design itself to do the best you can. And it has helped for us, at least, that from the beginning, we were trying to forge relationships with retailers and distributors. So even on our earliest campaigns, we had a retail pledge level or a way for retailers to back the campaign. And so we started to form some of those relationships early on, and they've paid off in the long run because those games have continued to sell. Um, but those two things go hand in hand. Have you, on your campaigns, I don't know offhand, have you have you done direct retailer uh, uh, pledge levels, things like that? Yes, but it's never been more than like 20 backers at that level. Like it's never been on a grand scale. I think part of that is most of my games are very niche. Uh, I make solo games. I make, you know, 20 minute playing $20 type games. And and honestly, I don't make that much money at a, at a retail or pledge anyway. You know, if you're selling it at 50% and then you're also giving some kind of subsidy on, on the shipping, like I'm not making enough money off of those to really make a difference. And so I think that's another thing to think about as far as the math and the scale. Because I know when I did Robomon, now you're talking about an $80 game. Now there's a margin versus the games I was doing before, which are $20. And now I've got, and that goes into marketing. Like all of a sudden I had a lot more money to play with, not the right word, but like to, to be able to put into the budget. Cause I was like, okay, if I can get a backer, that's $80 that then there's, you know, more to do with versus if I get a backer, it's $20 and I have a very tight margin to kind of mess around with. And so I think that's another thing when you're thinking about scale, can you, can you be the button shy of the world that puts out 18 card games and, and you're not making a lot of money per sale, but then you maximize, you have a lot of backers, you know, have 3,000 backers on a campaign and still make money. Yes. But what would be your thoughts? Like if I'm a new creator, do I start off with a $20 game? Do I start off with a $50 game? Maybe not 100 Maybe that's a big ask. I think if I've got a $100 game with a bunch of miniatures, I've never delivered anything before, I think maybe that's not a great idea. But when it comes to like the low range versus the mid range, what are your thoughts? Coming at 20 coming at 50 what do you what do you think? I would, well, going back to the like the humble idea, I would, I think, me from a few years ago might say to go for that twenty dollars game. Now, I think manufacturers know how to make a fifty dollars, sixty dollars game. Because my my main hesitation, the reason I would pull back from from uh, encouraging someone to go for a, a kind of a medium weight or a medium priced game like that, would be that they haven't learned how to make 
the game beautiful yet or how, how they haven't learned how to make the all these different components that would probably go into that game because a 50 dollar game is probably going to be more than just a deck of cards or something like that but at this point the project managers at any manufacturer are going to help you get there i think and so having that expertise hand in hand with what you're trying to create i i, I generally like to think uh to, to go with a passion you mentioned passion earlier if, you, if you're more passionate about the 50 dollar game uh I would go for that. I would go for the one that you're more passionate about. That said, if you're more passionate about the $20 game or the $25 game, and that's the one that you really want to share with the world, I would I would go with that. Doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be profitable. Like you said, you might you might have lost some money on those, some of those retail sales, but you never know. Some of those retailers might come back to it in the future. Some of those early backers, those 300 backers that you had, some of them I'm, I'm sure are still sticking around supporting you or at least hanging out and hoping for the next thing from you that they want. You get that sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I've talked to a lot of new creators about. It's like, understand that your first campaign, two campaign, three campaigns, maybe it's really about foundation. It's about building an audience, building a group of people that they learn to trust you. They become your raving fans. They're the ones that are on the social media groups and whatnot, talking about your stuff without you having to pay them or ask them to, or, you know, spend money on it. Uh, That's, that's really what you're doing. And so, yeah, you you might want to come in at a cheaper price point just because you know, you can man- manufacture it for cheaper. You can get it out in the world. It's going to be probably cheaper to ship. Like the the problems are going to be cheaper, right? The mistakes are going to be cheaper. Everything's going to be a little easier to handle when you come in on the low end. But if you're really passionate about that kind of middle, you know, ground $50 game, that's another thing to take into consideration. I was talking recently about how hard it is to finish anything. Small, large, enormous, tiny. Like it doesn't matter the size of the project. It's so hard to finish anything. And so the more passionate you are and the more excited you are about the thing, maybe the more likely you are to actually get it across the finish line. So there's that to take into consideration too, because if you're just doing something to start off with, just because you know it'll fund and you you know this is a good way to do it, but you're not really excited about it. It's like, if you're, you're selling something because you know you can make money. I mean, that, that works. But I don't know. That's something to, to really think to really think through. Any advice on that side of things? I, I, you mentioned earlier that that, that time is scarce and precious and if, for me if i'm going to spend my time on something it's going to be something i care about um it's going to be a, a, whether it's a video i'm excited to make a conversation with someone like you that i'm excited to have or or i'm going to spend 100 hours working on a, a new game i it's got to be something that that i'm excited to put out there in the world not just for me but for other people too because i'm putting it out there i'm creating something for people to consume and to use and hopefully to bring joy to their tabletops and so I don't want to waste their time either. So I, yeah, I, I, for every pro every project that, that I make, it, it, it essentially becomes a passion project, whether it's my design or someone else's design that we're publishing. That's a good point. You know, we're talking about monetizing creativity, but I feel like if you're getting into this for the monetization over the creativity, you're going to run into a problem. And I would have to really just ask you the question, why don't you just learn how to code websites for insurance companies or something like that? They're going to pay you a, a large amount of money you're going to be able to do something that is kind of creative, like you're bringing something to life. Um, but go be a plumber. Go be an electrician. Go build stuff. Like you're going to make a hundred grand a year doing that. Where if you're going to be a writer, a game designer, an artist, like the odds of making a hundred grand doing creative stuff is very low. So if you are coming in thinking monetization over creativity, you might run into uh, into some challenges there. Have you noticed? Have you noticed people doing that though? Like I, I feel like I've seen people that seem to be getting into the business of games 
for the money sometimes. Like they see a million dollar campaign, they're like, oh, okay, this is a way to make a lot of money without knowing anything about the margins, the background, how much goes into things. So what are your thoughts on that side of things as far as, you know, just encouraging people, I guess, as far as the creativity versus the money? I think you've said it really well there, Gabe. I, it's it's a little bit of a red flag whenever I hear someone who talking about something they want to create and one of their motivations for that is to make money, whether it's a game, whether it's a, anything that they're even just a little bit excited about. If, if they're already starting to talk about the money before they've started to actually create it, that to me is a little bit of a red flag and just par- partially on a personal level because I, I feel for them. Like I don't want them to fail in that way. But if you've determined that the gauge of success is that you are financially successful, that you have made money on it, there are just some other, and so many other ways that you can be successful. Like uh, if your goal is to make a, a game that makes some people happy, you could just design a game and play it with your family, play it with your friends, and that can make those people happy. But if your goal is to make a million dollars on a game and you don't meet that goal, that's something that's relatively out of your control. And so you're setting a goal that, that you can't even control at all. Whereas you can set the goal of putting the game on your table at some point. So yeah, that, that it's a big red flag when I hear about that, whether it's for designing, for creating a new product or creating um, a, a YouTube channel, a podcast. If you're getting into that for the money, you're probably not going to uh, going to have that work out. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, there's, there's one thing to be said about like paying your bills and get to a place where you're stable enough, you know, but if you're really getting into this to be rich and famous, good luck, you know, because most of the people I know that have gotten to that place where they are, you know, doing a creative thing and they have a lot of money in their bank account and they drive a nice car, big house, all that. For the most part, they got into it because they loved it. And out of that love, they got really, really good at it. And the thing about re- being really, really good at something, people will pay you to do that thing. You know, and and maybe you go into movies where you make a lot of money, or maybe you go into game design where even the top end is not making crazy, but you can still make a very good living. Uh, I think that's something to think about because, like, like you said, what does success look like? And really stepping back and defining that because if success is monetary in your mind, especially if that's in like the top, you know, one, two, or three priorities, go do something else and, and just do this stuff as a hobby because I mean, it's just the odds of of selling millions of games like you have, the odds of becoming Alan Moon and having a ticket-to-ride type game that sells a zillion copies every year forever, uh, it's very, very low. And so, yeah, go do something else on Saturday morning, play test and, and prototype, but on Monday, you know, go back to the office and and make more make more money doing that. And Because and, you can use that day job to fund the creativity. So that's another thing. Let's, let's think about that. Because you did this for a long time. You've had a pretty stable job, and you were doing all the, the Stonemaier game stuff on the side. So tell me, tell me about that, because your monetization was not necessarily games. It was like you were monetizing your other time and then bringing that over into the tabletop space. Tell me about your experience there. Yeah, and in fact, I would say this was crucially important to build that foundation that you talked about earlier because I was not relying on money earned by Stillmeyer Games for my income to pay the bills. Um, so I had this project for Viticulture and uh, it, it did, like I said, it did okay. And then we sold some retail copies of it and I had a, a full-time day job at this time and uh, all of that money that I was earning for Viticulture was going back into Viticulture. It would eventually go back into a second print run of the game, uh, opposed to me counting on that money for my own personal funds. Instead, I I had another campaign for another game, Euphoria. And at that point, I, I was working so much for both jobs, my, my hobby job and my full-time day job, that I asked my boss if he could pay me 20% less and I could take one day off a week 
just to focus on on my my company that I was working on. I did that for five months, and things were going well enough at that point that I had enough saved up that I could go for a year. Basically, I could I could just make still my game is my full time job for a year and see if that worked out. And so I ended up quitting my day job at that point. But tiptoeing into it and not relying on those funds, it, it might have been the make or break point for the company because I was I was able to put all that money back into the company instead of using it to pay my own bills. Did you? Would you? When did you have that tipping point? How did you do that? Well, I had an interesting scenario because I was living in Honduras, where cost of living is basically nothing, and I was working for a school that provided free housing, and so I'm not paying rent. Uh, I'm not having to pay nearly as much for just normal living expenses. And so that allowed me more flexibility, even though I have a bunch of kids. You know, I've got four kids and a, and a spouse. Like that changes the math on everything. But because of where I was living. And so I think that's another thing to think about if you're going to try to monetize creativity is what are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to move to a cheaper place? Like now I live in the middle of nowhere in Alabama. It's still relatively cheap. Nowhere near as cheap as Honduras, but still pretty cheap to live where I live. My mortgage is very low. You know, it's it's just easier to monetize creativity when I'm not paying $3,000 a month for rent like I might be in big cities and, and things like that and, and trying to have enough space for all these kids. <laughs> and that's another thing just to kind of think about is also, do you have a spouse or like, you know, a partner or something that makes really good money so you can take a step back and make less money? You're trying to start things off, trying to get into creative, you know, something, even if you're not starting a company, even if you're just trying to pitch to publishers to, to you know write a book to make a game but do you have somebody else that can kind of make more money that allows you to do that like I've got a friend his wife is a doctor she makes a ton of money so he makes games because he's able to do that now if his wife wasn't a doctor he probably wouldn't be able to be in this space because he just wouldn't be able to pay his bills and so I think that's nothing what are you willing to sacrifice and do you have the people around you that can kind of all come together as a team to make it all to make it all work and so what would be what would be your advice there as far as like, how do you, because it's, it's really not about creativity as much as your entire life. It's like, how are you willing to build your entire life? Tell me some of your experiences that you talk about the corporate kind of world and then slowly moving in. But what else as far as like a life? Because you're not, you're not driving a Range Rover as far as I know. Like you're not out there going crazy. Like you still live, like do you still live in the same condo that you've lived in forever? Like even though you're making a lot of money now? Uh, no, I don't know. I, I lived there for around 14 years and I drove a 2003 Camry for, for a long, long time. My girlfriend Megan and I moved in around three and a half years ago. And I, I did eventually, I, I, I got a different car. I have, I have a slightly nicer car now that I have fun driving. Um, but uh, I do, I try. So what I do is, and I'm glad that you've tied this, um, the, the hobby, the passion, or if you may want to make a career out of this, I'm glad that you've tied it to all these personal things things that factor into whether or not you can actually monetize something because I do a monthly budget. Like I look at, it's not a tight budget. I don't say I have this much money to spend on something this month. In the back of my head, I kind of had that, but I don't do that on paper, but rather I look at how much money I spent in the past month in different pockets. How much did I spend on food? How much did I spend on investments on things that are going to help me 30 years down the road? And how, and I look at that total, how much did I spend on things this month? And did I do well? Should I have spent less? Uh, Can I, can I, trim that. And even just the awareness of seeing how much I spend month to month has been really helpful for me to be better at living within my means and hopefully preparing a, a better future for, for me and my family. Um, do you do anything like that? Do you, do you help? Do you look at your personal finances um, and have that impact decisions that you make on, on the business side of your life? Yeah. So I don't know how healthy this is, 
but I check my bank account pretty much every day. And I just stare at the numbers. Now, there's also, you know, I'll sit down and think through the budgets and, you know, I've got a game coming up and I've got shoes to buy for kids. Like, there's all those things that also factor in. But, like, if if I was trying to lose weight, I don't think I would look at the scale every day. I think that is super detrimental from, like, a physical, mental thing. But when it comes to money, I like going in and looking at those numbers because it's a motivator. It's like, hey, this is not where you need to be. You know, you got you got you got a lot of college you might have to pay for. You got cars you're gonna have to buy for these kids. You have some health things that that these that your children. So like that's one thing that it's almost like a a fire. You know what I mean? Like it, it kind of puts it in me to go. I got to get th- these numbers have to go bigger. And how do they go bigger? Well, I have to make more content. I have to put more games out into the world. I have to. There's a million things that I like, okay. Now that, let's channel that burden into activity. Now I think it's it can be dangerous because some people they get that burden and then they sit on the couch. So it depends on who you are. Like you have to find what motivates you. Now, I, I've got motivators walking around my house daily. I go, I need to, I need to go back to work because I got to do some stuff to make sure you're, you're going to be taken care of. You know, and and that's a balance though to not go crazy and not work eighteen hours a day and be like, oh, I'm doing it for my kids. It's like, well, you're probably doing it for yourself too. Like it's not just for them at that point. You know, so I think there's some things to to think about there when it comes to motivating factors. Tell me about you though. Because I don't think that we've ever, in all the conversations we've had, and to be to be honest, part of why I started this new podcast was to be able to talk to you. Uh, I enjoy our time together. <laughs> so appreciate you being here. But tell me about some of the things that have motivated you over the years and just how you continue to keep going, how you continue to come back and have new ideas, new games. What works for you? The mission at my company is to bring joy to tabletops worldwide. And I do come back to that a lot. I know it's you know a mission statement, whatever weight that actually holds. But I do think about it a lot because I see people talking about our games. I'm on social media. I I see if people are excited about our games. I see if they're not excited about our games. And it really does uplift me when I see someone having fun with one of our games or when they've connected with someone, especially someone unexpectedly about about through one of our games or through any tabletop game. So that is still a major motivator. On a personal level, I, I... I mean, I would say money is fairly low down on the list. Money is pretty much throughout the 10 years that I've run some of our games has been, can I make enough to live and, you know, have a house over my head, have food? Can I, can I do those things? And maybe over the years it has become a little, I've notched that up a little bit and and wanting to live uh, generously, I guess is a way to put it. And sometimes that means charitable or or for people who are, are, have, uh, have needs that aren't met. Um, But part of it is also, about my friends and family. Like I, I want to be, I want to be someone who could pick up the bill at dinner from time to time and just make everyone at the table a little happier because I don't have to worry about that, that type of thing. So money has gone up a little bit in that way, but in between all that, the, 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 the meta of bringing joy to tabletops worldwide, everything below that is I, I, I'm really trying to make other people around me happy. And that's not always a great motivator because I can't really control other people's emotions around me, but it is a motivator for better or for worse. Do you think about that uh, with, uh, yeah, what do you think about, yeah. about that? So as you're talking about the generosity thing, I think it's a Dave Ramsey quote where he says, live like no one else so that you can give like no one else. Mm-hmm. And the idea being, you know, sacrifice, especially early, build up your savings, build up your investments, build up this life, pay off all your debt, you know, live within your means like we're talking about. That way you, you can get to that place where one, a crisis doesn't blow up your whole life. Right where something bad happens, and you're like, I don't have any money to pay for this because no, you've been planning a hit. But also, you get to a place in your life where when someone has a need, you can you can help them out, right, small or large. So that's something I also think a lot about. It's like I want to get to a place where 
it's not just about me and mine having enough. It's like, how can I help other people have enough as well? And I think, I think with creativity too, though, you're also doing that, but not necessarily from a money standpoint. I think you're already thinking through, how can I bring joy to the, the world? You know, I think the table is a very sacred place. And the more we can bring people to the table to have fun experiences and, you know, live some life together, the better the world gets. So you can already be doing that with creative, you know, things. But then also to get to a place where you can do it with money as well. It's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, let me ask you this, though. When it comes to monetizing creativity, is it easier to become a publisher and do that? Especially in games, it's hard to make money in any aspect. But just in general, if someone really wants to make a living at this, can they do it as just a writer, as just a designer, as just a creative person? Or are they going to have to get into the business side of things, whether they want to or not, because that's just where more money is? If you want to make a career out of it, I think you almost have to be, you have to be the creator. You have to be the publisher. I think there are very, you mentioned Alan Moon earlier. There's Alan Moon's, there's, there's, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the, the designer of Pandemic. He's done well. Oh, Matt Leacock. Matt Leacock, yeah. Who, uh, in fact, I think Matt has actually started a publishing company at this point, but for a long time, he was just, just a designer. Um, there are outliers, I think, that can make a career um, and, a, and a really wildly successful career out of being just a designer. Um, but I think it's pretty rare. I think it's pretty rare. Even for uh, publishers that try to be generous with their, their royalties, um, you have to sell a lot of games for that. And a lot of games on an ongoing basis, year to year, month to month. Uh, for you to for you to pay those bills year to year, month to month. So I think it's pretty rare. What do you think? Yeah, I think again, over time, it also depends on the industry. You know, if you're yeah, going to get into writing, true. you know, if you're going to write a book, well, you might be able to sell 10 million copies potentially. You know, and all of a sudden you can just sit down and write and let the publisher take care of the marketing and all the the graphic design and the typesetting and all that kind of stuff, and you just sit down and write at your at your keyboard. But yeah, if you're in the game space. Publishing seems to be the, the better option if you want to make a living. Now, a lot of people don't care. They want to do their day job. And they want to have fun, you know, doing this on the side. But for me personally, you know, I was talking to a publisher, this was years ago, uh, about, you know, I was pitching a game to them and, and I asked them, I was like, well, you know, if, if it does work out, give me the percentage. Like, what's your normal rate? And they said, oh, we pay 6%. I was like, dang, where does the other 94% go? You know, and then so later on, when I got, I was like, I'm going to get into the publishing side because I realized the publisher's not keeping 94%. Like that's, no, they're not just being stingy with, you know, like the margins are crazy and all that. But I but I at least want to be the one who determines where the 94% goes. Or if I'm designing the game, the 100%. It's all on me. And I want to have the ball in my hands and I want to decide the things. I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. I'm not really good at a lot of these things. I'm going to have to learn and grow and figure things out. And I'm going to have to find other people to bring on to kind of help fill my gaps and then people who are really good with spreadsheets and really good with logistics and really good with the math because I don't know. But I was super excited about that. And I think that's another thing to think about if you're going to try to monetize creativity. What are you excited about? If you're only excited about the creation aspect, then maybe stick to that part. But if you're also excited about the things you're going to have to learn and the ways you're going to have to grow as a person, the skills you're going to have to pick up, then maybe it can work out for you to go into the other side of things. But I think you just have to assess yourself and, and, and kind of know know who you are. But let me ask you this, Jamie, if you were to start over today, right? If you're going to do things, you know, Stonemaier Games falls off into the ocean, never to be seen again, wingspan sales drop to zero, you, you got to start over. How would you new. do it? Yeah. But I mean, how would, how would you do it? Because I mean, yeah. you already have the skills to be able to do it again. You've done it once. 
the evidence is there to say you could do it again. Why not? And so talk to me. What would you do? Especially, you know, someone listening to this or thinking, okay, I want to get into this space. What should I do? How would I do it? What would you do? If I built something up over, you know, I built some of our games up over, over the last 10 years and, uh, and it crashed and burned and failed. Not that it's inherently a failure to build something up and have it, have it slowly die out or, or, or suddenly die out. You still build something. You still hopefully made some people happy along the way. Um, I think I would be, I mean, honestly, I, th- I think I would be a little hesitant to jump back in and start something new again right away. I think I might, I might need to take a, a break and work for someone else for a while. Use, use one of the skill sets that I've earned from my experience that I've learned and hopefully help out another company with that for a while. And I might get that itch later on. I definitely have my whole life. I've had this entrepreneurial itch. I'm very lucky to be able to run my own company, but I think it would be it would be tough to immediately jump back into that, and I, I think that would be my my inclination. Well, let me, let me about reframe. That? Yeah. Well, let me reframe the yeah. question a bit. What if you you bump yourself in the head, you got amnesia, Stonemaier Games in your mind doesn't exist anymore. You're just going to start over. Yeah. It's not that you burned it to the ground. You didn't. I see you know, Say a bunch of things online and get canceled. And nobody wants to buy your stuff anymore. Let's just pretend it's day zero. You're yeah. starting over. You know. Yeah. You you didn't go through this traumatic experience. <laughs> you're just yeah. you're just starting from zero. How would you do that? Okay. How would I do that? Well, can I mention? I'll mention one thing that I'll, I'll do. Di- I would do differently. That's tied to money. Um, early on, I I was really worried about pretty much every dollar that I was spending on anything on on, on prototypes on on the ten dollars that it would cost to to mail a, uh, a a sample to a reviewer. Every little cent seemed to be everything because I didn't know if we would actually sell any copies of the game. I didn't know if it would fund on Kickstarter and I, I had to invest something up front. And so I made a good call and a bad call. The good call was that I partnered with a friend. Um, my friend, Alan, was excited to to be a part of that design process, that playtesting process. It was really helpful for me to have a friend along the way. But because of the money side of things, I also wanted uh, a financial partner to help out in the early days. Um, and it wasn't that I didn't have, I, I, I had a small amount of savings at that time, but I was, I was really worried about failing and I was worried about losing the money that I had invested. So I thought, okay, if I have another, someone else who has some, some skin in the game, um, then it's not only my money that I'm losing. I didn't want to lose their money either, but basically I brought in an equity partner uh, at a very low level, but at the time it seemed like a lot of money. We're talking hundreds of dollars, but it seemed like a lot of money at the time. And that really wasn't the right call. I learned rather quickly that um, this person, despite their best intentions, what didn't have the passion for it that I did. They weren't there to put in the time that I was putting into it. Uh, I think they just saw it as any other investment that they could toss a few bucks at and, and hopefully get a decent return on it. And so I wish I hadn't been so scared of failing financially that I made a dumb decision in terms of equity uh, and uh, an equity partnership at the time. Um, so that's something that I would do differently. Absolutely. Would you get it? Would you do crowdfunding again to get going? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If I was starting here from scratch, yeah, I would. Yeah, I think the math, it just makes too much sense. Like, you just need that big investment if you're going to bring something to market and the art, the graphic design, everything is expensive. Things are getting more expensive by the day. Um, and so I think, yeah, crowdfunding, I don't know of very many people who have been able to do it without it. I know Plat Hat Games, they started out not having to need crowdfunding, but that was years ago. And so I don't know. 
And also, I guess from a marketing standpoint, crowdfunding campaigns bring in people. They they put your stuff out into the world. So maybe even if even if you didn't need the money necessarily, just the the marketing aspect and just having people talk about your game and getting excited about it and building up a community. I think even from that standpoint, it makes makes a lot of sense if you're going to start over to start there. At the very least, it's a huge part of the gaming industry. I, I can't speak as much about other industries anymore. I'm, I'm sure there are some that thrive on crowdfunding and others that don't. But gaming, yeah, we're gaming, tabletop gaming. Uh, it's it's been it, it has long since been legitimized as a a way of bringing something to life that people look to and get excited about. So absolutely, I would start there. Well, Jimmy, let me ask you this: kind of switching gears just a little bit. Why do you think people should design games? Right? What are the skills that are involved? Even if you're never going to try to get it published, you're not going to try to you know start a business or anything. But just the skill set, just the everything that goes into creating a game. Why should people do that in your mind? So when I was a little kid, I designed some games just for fun. And at the time I thought I was designing games. What, what it meant is that I would, I would usually take another game and I would make my version of it. And that process in itself was really helpful for me as a kid to, to put my creativity and, and actually put something on the table. I, I wrote little rule books. I, uh, I, I, you know, had little game components, things like that, that I drew out. Um, but what I didn't do is I didn't play test. I usually with these games, I play them one time and I, that was that was all they ever got to the table. As an adult now that I'm actively playing and designing games and developing games, I've learned so much about that playtesting process, that process of um, learning constructive feedback from other people and taking that feedback and improving the thing that I'm working on. And that skill set, I think, can be applied to anything. Putting something out there that you are vulnerable about out there to the world to share with people and taking that feedback and actually making it better, going through that process step-by-step, day-by-day, I think is, uh, it's a it's a universal skill set to have, even if nothing else comes of that game. Yeah, I definitely agree. The confidence that you have to build up to be able to say, hey, I made this thing. I want you to see it, try it out. Let me know what you think. That is not a small thing to overcome, you know? And there's so many people that are afraid of like public speaking and they're afraid to like put themselves in front of other people. And I feel like game design, because of the playtesting process, really does that. And then also I think, the process of creating a game it, it has so much problem solving built in. That's why I, I love that you were doing it as a child because I feel like as a kid, you're having to develop all these things that are like problem solving. This doesn't work. How do I make it work? This is a broken mechanism or whatever. How do I fix it? And I feel like that's maybe the best life skill you can learn is problem solving. So do you agree? Is, is that something else you, you've kind of thought about? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I go back to that story where I, I wish as a kid I'd actually played it more than once because I could have developed some of those skill sets of because a lot of the, the reason that I didn't go any further is that I had put it on the table and it wouldn't work all that well at all. And I'd be so discouraged that I just move on to something else. I designed something else so I could go play outside. And I wish I had played it at least one more time, taken that feedback and played it one more time because you're right. It's, it's an amazing interface for problem solving. Yeah, definitely. And then also just to be able to scratch that creative itch. I feel like humans in general are creative. I, I feel like that's just part of how we work. And even if like you're an accountant and all you do is numbers all day long, I feel like there's still like a seed of creativity in in you because I've never met a non-creative child. I never like I've worked with kids. I've worked with kids in an orphanage going through like terrible trauma, like very difficult situations. Even they, in all their crazy, you know, the crazy of their life, the chaos of their lives, were hyper creative. They wanted to draw, they wanted to color, they wanted to come up with stories, they wanted to make up their own games. But somewhere along the way that falls off. And I don't think it's because we 
you know, grow out of it. I think, I think life maybe pulls it from us. Maybe the way we do school, maybe the way, you know, we kind of build relationships and we're afraid to like, like you're saying, be vulnerable and put ourselves out there. We're afraid to be rejected or discouraged. And so I think the creativity in us is killed, not that it, you know, just doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and so, man, what are your, what are your thoughts on that as far as like creativity and in, in people in general? I was thinking about this the other day because I was at a game day and a friend brought their kid and um, a four, little four-year-old kid was just having a ball by himself building like a magnet block structure and he was telling a story while he was doing it and he was just off in his own little world. I could I could hear him because I was playing a game on a, a kind of nearby and, and it made me so happy that he was so freely creating this thing that were this, there were no stakes at all. Like he wasn't thinking about if he had enough time to finish the story or he wasn't thinking about his family, he wasn't thinking about uh, if he could monetize this story or this structure that he was making. He was completely free in that creativity. And we've talked a lot today about monetization. And I, I think it's absolutely important to think about those things if you are trying to make a career out of uh, out of game design. But uh, you also mentioned the idea that sometimes you can just have a hobby for the sake of having a hobby, for the sake of creation. And I think a lot of great things can come from that. A lot of creative ideas and solutions can come from not having the burden of monetization sometimes and not having the burden of, of paying the bills based on this thing that you're creating. And I think that's how sometimes I, I want to be able to tap into that inner child a little bit more um, with those types of projects and maybe give myself permission to, to make something not for publication, but just for the sake of creating it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I love that. I think that's a good place to end our conversation. But Jamie, where can people find you? Do you got any projects you want to talk about or, or you know, tell people to where, where they can find you online? Yeah, the, the, the hub for everything that, that we make, I'm, I'm lucky I'm wearing the shirt today, is stonemeyergames.com. Um, where I have a blog about crowdfunding and entrepreneurship. I also have a game design YouTube channel where I, I share games that I enjoy and the, uh, the mechanisms that, I, that, I, that I've learned from them. And I have Instagram, social media, all those things. That, the best way, whatever's the best for, for someone watching this um, that they want to stay connected, we have it on our website. Awesome. Well, Jamie, really appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Gabe.